Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Phillips Frequency Podcast Series. I'm uh, really excited for my guest today, Justin Burkop. He's a leadership consultant, and he'll be talking to you about turning passion into profit. Justin, thank you for taking time of your schedule to be here today. Um, do you want to give the audience a quick uh, introduction or more and tell your story and what, what you do here? Hi, Phil. Thank you for having me. Well, since I was really young, uh, 14 years old to be exact, I got really interested in personal development. I read a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And after reading that book, it really transformed my life. I realized that you could choose your own attitude despite any circumstances that you have, and that ultimately you were responsible for your life, and not any of your circumstances, not anyone around you, not even the place you were born, that it was ultimately you who determined your results. And since then, I've turned that into a uh, profitable consulting business where I now help people to take their passion and turn it into profits. Awesome. I read in your bio that you actually started coaching when you were in grade 9. You did your first uh, little seminar to a class of grade 9 students. How did you uh, set that up so early on where you were you know, doing a little seminar for people? You were in grade 9 and basically teaching your own classmates. How did that come about? Well, grade 9 was when I read a book that changed the rest of my life. And this was called The Eighth Habit by Stephen Covey. This book was really about how do you find your voice? How do you find that unique intersection between your passion, your talent, your conscience, and vision? So I was reading this book during grade 9. I would often hide the book under the desk and read when the teacher was speaking. And one day in health class, I can't remember what the teacher was talking about, but I just really didn't think it was worth my time. I didn't think it was valuable. So after class, I went up to the teacher, who was also the vice principal of, of the school at the time, and I told him, you know what, I really appreciate what you're teaching, but I just don't think that it's of value to us. And he said, okay, so what do you suggest I teach? So I pulled up my copy of The Eighth Habit, I told him a bit, about, a bit about it, and he said, okay, sure, this sounds great. And I said, wonderful. Then he looked at me and he said, well, how about you teach it next class? And that's how I started teaching. So you basically told your grade 9 teacher that what he was teaching was not valuable and they had better content. Basically I did and uh, I was a little bit precocious and I was able to teach the next class for a full 50 minutes about the 8th habit and the 7 habits and that's when I realized that teaching is not as easy as it seems at all. And is it safe to say this is the time in your life when you realized that this is something you wanted to do? Was this kind of like an initial marker for you that maybe this would be a path you might want to consider later on? Well, at the time when I was getting up to speak, I was more nervous than you could imagine, and I really wasn't thinking too much about the future. But what I did see around me as I was reading The Eighth Habit was massive discontentment from my peers. I saw that school wasn't really reaching out and helping people to understand who they were or what they loved, and from that point I really wanted to do something about that. Okay, so fast forward to today. Um, what is it that you do in your day-to-day -day business? Uh, can you tell the audience a little more about that? Sure. Well, primarily what I do is I work with people to really figure out four things. I help them to figure out what's stopping them, what sort of psychological barriers do they have, what sort of dysfunctional behaviors are they engaged in that's preventing them from really fully realizing their dreams. The second thing I do is I help them to inventory their strengths and their passions. I really help them to become clear with what are their needs, what are their needs, what are their talents, and really what motivates them. 
Then this third step that I walk my clients through is I help them to really integrate who they are into what they do. There's a very specific process that I've developed that helps people to not only identify what they're good at and what motivates them, but to begin applying it in their present day-to-day -day circumstances and moving towards building a business that truly reflects their voice. And then lastly, the fourth step that I leave off on while I work with clients is we develop a strategy so that by the time our consulting arrangement is done that they're ready to hit the ground running and move forward. What are some of the most common psychological barriers they run into? This is a part that really fascinates me and I've read a lot about human behavior and psychology since I've finished university. Um, what are the things that you come across with your clients that holds people back from pursuing their passion? Well, I think largely that it's a sociocultural problem and in that, what I mean is that we've been raised in a society that basically rewards the person who has the most toys. So most of us are running around, really trying to see, you know, how can I get a job that I don't hate, that pays me as much money as I can earn, so I can buy the things I want. And I find that, while well, a lot of people want to start their own businesses, that unfortunately it's largely driven by this consumerism or capitalist mindset. But if we really turn the table, if we switch the way that a person is looking at the function that their business is there to serve, and say, how can my business be used as a vehicle to help me really share my soul, share my deep passion with the world in a way that is meaningful and really changes lives, they just start looking at their business and showing up in a whole different way. How often would you say people I've come across that have tried starting their own businesses um, the need to support yourself is so primal, where you need to be able to pay your bills and put food on the table. In your opinion, how often is that the thing holding people back? Because they're just not sure if they're going to make it, per se, in as an entrepreneur or have enough to get by. Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that question, Phil, because I've been in situations where I could have taken a job that paid fairly well, that would have you know, paid all my expenses and more for you know, your average 40 hours a week, or I could have dedicated myself full-time to my business. In both of those situations when that came up, I just threw myself at my business. And unfortunately, the first month that this happened, uh, I had my rent payment here in Vancouver. It was about $900 a month. So I was working my butt off, paying off some uh, payments I had to make for some courses I've taken. And it was the last day of the month, and I was still short that $900 to pay rent the next day. So I had a client call that day, and it was one of those complimentary calls. You're talking to someone who may or may not become a client. And I was under so much pressure to close that deal, because if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to make my rent payment. But the reason I share that that's the reason that I share that story, and in case you're wondering, yes, I did close that client that day and made my rent payment and everything turned out, is that we, we show up differently, we act differently while we're under pressure, while we need to do something as opposed to something we look at doing that is maybe a, a faraway dream or something that we want. We don't give the same to our business when our back is against the wall as when maybe we have a comfortable job that's giving us a nice six-figure salary because our heart just might not be in it. And I think that for most people, they might want to start a business, but unless they're being really put into a corner, really pressured or have that deeper why, that they're not going to do what's required to succeed. And is that just motivation purely basically that they need to have that push to be able to overcome the fear that's going to go into building a business? I think largely it's basically about your comfort zone. Was I comfortable the first four months even while I was coaching and doing consulting work? Not at all. 
my complimentary sessions, even my client sessions, were something that I wasn't used to. It was new for me. It was it was very uncomfortable. I felt like I was trying to live somebody else's life and do something that was foreign to me. But the reason I did it is because I gave myself no other choice. Had I a fallback or something else I could have done, I probably would have taken it. Because when you start a new business, when you go into a new venture, it's often so uncomfortable and the things that you need to do to succeed are so foreign to you that you need a good reason to push forward. And I find that there's two things, two good reasons that you need to have. Either one, you need to be motivated by money or have your back against the wall economically, have some sort of reason to succeed for those results. Or two, you need to be so clear with your vision and your personal mission and purpose and to see your business as part of that, that that's the reason you do it. But when I look around me in North America, there's many people who aren't crystal clear with what their own life purpose and their life mission is. So that's where I find for some people, if you burn your bridges, say in some circumstances, you'll be forced to find a way to make your business work. Because otherwise, if you're not clear enough about your purpose and your mission, you just might not have that motivation. Yeah, Tony Robbins always says you're either moving towards something or you're moving away from something, right? So we have two motivating factors. And if one can be a goal or a target out in front of us that we're really driven towards, which I feel most people don't, um, that's the motivating factor they don't have, right? You know, unless they're really driven towards achieving X, Y, Z, they're not going to push that hard. Where people really do um, become more resourceful is when, yeah, they're moving away from something, right? A shitty job, a bad relationship, poor living circumstances. That's when they really get fueled and more emotion comes into play and they really start moving towards that. But it is either one or the other. You're either going to move towards something or you're going to be moving away from something, that's for sure. When it comes to um, passions, what are the things that, you know, really, um, how do people identify what they're really passionate about? Like, do you kind of look back to their childhood? Is it the things they do in their free time for fun? Like, what real points of indication can our audience take to uh, finding their passion and what they might be interested in doing? There's an assessment I do called the Berkman Assessment, and in case you're interested, there's a free link to do this assessment via my website at justinbrokeup.com. But really, what it's about is, I, t I have people do this assessment. Uh, I did this assessment myself in 2012, and I found it to be fabulous, one of the best leveraged ways where you can put your time and money into. And after I get the Berkman results, now, since I've started using it, I, I simply look at what are those motivating factors? What are their motivating interests? How are they showing up? What are their underlying needs that compel them to take actions? And I coach them based on those results. Whereas before, before I took the Berkman in 2012 myself, before I was using a formal assessment, really the first probably two to three months even were a process of me trying to get to know my client, a process of me trying to figure out what motivates them, trying to figure out their interests. But now I find it works just so much better using an assessment like the Berkman, so I can simply have the report in front of me and coach them to get results from that right away. Is it like an aptitude test, basically, that kind of identifies areas that they're stronger at, things that they're weaker at? Uh, it is. It's uh, considered a psychometric test. It was developed in the 50s and uh, improved since then. Basically, it looks at how do you perceive the world, and based on how you perceive the world tells us a lot about yourself in terms of what motivates you, how you show up, how you respond in stressful situations, for instance. The problem with a lot of other tests, uh, one test I used was the Myers-Briggs, is uh, there's something called the self-bias. It'll get you to talk about yourself. It'll say, in this situation, would you rather stay home or would you rather go to a party? And it might rate your level of extroversion. 
but with a self-bias, what that is, is that means that we might appear, we might choose to respond in a socially desirable way. So although we might maybe prefer to stay home and have a glass of wine at the end of the night, on some of these tests that are asking you these I-based questions, we might actually say that we might prefer to go out or just change our answers just a little bit to appear to be more socially desirable. Interesting. Um, these lenses of the world that the Berkman method uses? Berkman. Berkman. Um, are there like a series of them? Is there like off the top of your head? Can you kind of go over some that you kind of come across? Sure, absolutely. So the Berkman is basically broken down into what are your interests? What, what sorts of activities do you need to be doing on a regular basis to really feel fulfilled and excited about your life? What are your needs? In other words, the second thing is about what do you need in different areas of your life in regard to one-on-one -on -one relationships, in regards to group activities, uh, in regards to even the level of authority you need from your boss to show up at your best. Then the third thing it looks at, which is even more rare, is what are your stress behaviors? How do you show up in a situation while you are stressed out? And by understanding that, when you're stressed out, you can simply go to your Berkman report or talk to your coach and say, here are my symptoms, here's how I'm showing up. And it's really a process of reverse engineering. You say, oh wow, you're procrastinating a lot maybe. Maybe you're unable to focus. And for some people that actually might be a direct result of certain needs not being met. It sounds like there's a lot about presence, right? It identifies areas where you're not showing up, areas that you are. And it seems like it's just a good self-awareness um, exercise that some might be able to do to kind of learn a little bit more about their strengths and their weaknesses. Yeah. Um, in the world, one of my beliefs is that it's our dharma or it's our purpose to show up as our highest self. I first tapped into that. Luckily at a young age, I was running around a lake by my parents' house, just out for a jog, hanging out outside, bright sunny day. And after running a few laps around this lake, I just began to feel a sense of connectedness, a sense of oneness with the universe, if you will. And this was before I'd read any self-development books, before I'd attended any seminars, had any coaches. I was basically a 12, 13-year-old kid hanging out at home and going to school. But during this experience, I just had this feeling of knowing that was so strong, that the purpose of my life was to be in this state, to be in this state of connectedness, to be in the state of oneness and love, really. So I went home and I wrote in my journal that my purpose was to be my higher self and to help others do the same. And since then, it's really been a process of remembering, a process of going back to that moment, of having other moments like that, where I feel this sense of connectedness and aliveness. And the second part of that is I really make it a point in my own life to see what I can do to help others to go into that state. I think that once we're in our higher self, once we're in that state of presence or connectedness, things really seem to have an effortless flow to them. And on one hand, we can do a whole bunch of crazy things. We can meditate, we can skydive, we can rock climb, trying to find out what those activities are that maybe gives us that adrenaline or, or else that dopamine or serotonin that allows us to feel connected to the world. But for me, that really wasn't enough. And that's why the Berkman changed my world so much, because it began to be a predictable way I could help people be their higher self. I could see what sort of environment they need to be put in. Are these people who prefer one-on-one -on -one activities? Do these people need to be doing a lot of numerical work, or are they more literary? And as you coach people to become more aware of their strengths, become more aware of their needs, and you, and you coach them to realign their life so they're doing those things, all of a sudden a lot of the stress symptoms that they might be exhibiting start to drop away. And the person underneath is often just so amazing. 
and and beautiful that often the world hasn't seen them before because when we're living a life like we're meant to live we show up ten times more powerfully than we do when we're just shoved into a box of the doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever stereotype you raised up to become. Yeah, one of my mentors always says we're born uh, a beautiful diamond and as we grow older there gets layers of dirt put on us and shit and stuff like that and as you get older, you know, sometimes just realizing that there's still a diamond underneath that and it's kind of cleaning it off and finding that passion because you look at the energy and the connection that kids have with the world and people always say that, you know, you kind of die as you get older, there's some kind of disconnect that happens there and it's uh, it is really important to kind of come back to that and recognize that, you know, we're all full of potential that we once had when we were kids and it's still there. That's right. I mean, I was in Germany last fall and I had the opportunity to uh, hang out with one of my cousins who was six years old and his friends. We would just play soccer together. And his name was Bennett. He didn't speak a word of English. I didn't. I barely spoke a word of German. Um, so we just hang out and play soccer when his parents were at work or in between when he was doing his homework and eating and things like this. And I found such a joy in that. Just me, my cousin, and a few of his friends, the neighbors basically, just hanging out and playing soccer. I mean, I didn't need words to communicate with them. It was just being with each other, having fun being kids, because kids see the world through the lens of innocence. They don't look at it through the lens of judgment and rationality and logic, but they just experience the world. And I think that it's a calling and a reminder for us that we don't need to assess everything scientifically or mathematically. We can just show up and be present to our own experience and sharing that with others and have a perfectly fulfilling and successful life. When you're feeling disconnected um, from your path or your spiritual journey, what ways do you find or what things do you do to realign yourself and kind of get back on that path? There's two things that I find for me really work without fail. Those are meditation. Um, and meditation does not have to mean, you know, sitting on a cushion with your legs crossed, saying "Om," you know, ten times over the course of an hour. Meditation can be going for a walk in the forest or in a ravine and just appreciating the beauty around you. Meditation can even be doing dishes and just being present to that experience, being present to where your mind is at without trying to control your mind, just being present in that moment. Uh, medita meditation can be a lot of things. For me, it just means being aware in the present. And the second thing that I find works, the uh, lazy man's way of meditation, if you will, is something called audiovisual entrainment. Uh, I discovered this a few years ago and became certified in it. And basically there's this uh, device, uh, I think the website is mindalive.com or .ca, I believe. So it's th these, these, these glasses you put on with flashing lights and you put on a headphone, you put on some headphones and it actually entrains your mind so that over the course of 21 minutes, you go into a deep meditative state, you become very relaxed, very present with yourself, and you come out of it. But it's so passive because the rhythm of these lights and the sound is synchronized with your brain's EEG patterns and can slowly shift you into a different state of awareness as you need it. Interesting. What about journaling? Um, before we got onto the podcast, we were talking about journaling, and you said you have 45 journals. I always have multiple journals, and I kind of find that's really confusing. It's like why I have multiple journals, I don't know. Um, what about journaling? How often do you do that? Do you find that as a source of reconnecting back to your purpose and your path? For me, if you were to look at my Berkman report, my literary interest is one of my top three. What it means is that for me, I love writing. I would write essays even if I wasn't paid to, just for the fun of it. I might do a master's or a doctorate just because I enjoy writing and discussing ideas so much. But I think the caveat there is that not everyone loves writing. For me, I find journaling a great process because it meets this interest 
it's reflective, it's, pre it's, a, it's a presencing exercise for myself. But for some people who maybe aren't as keen as writing, play, you know, playing musical instruments or having conversations with their friends could be just as effective. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely love to journal. For me, journaling is a key thing. I don't consider myself a writer. Even initially um, writing the blog post for this blog, uh, it's been a bit of a struggle and it's definitely been something I'm getting more and more comfortable with. But I think it just as time goes by, you hone in that skill, so like I said early on, right? It's not easy at first, but you definitely develop that skill as time goes by. Uh, what do you recommend for people that have, are either thinking about going to university or have gone through university and they're kind of sensing that going to school might not be the best path. They're kind of looking at maybe, you know, pursuing their passion or some kind of alternative education. Um, what do you recommend for someone in that kind of situation? Based on the people I've spoken to and the people I've been around, I think I've come to realize that university isn't needed to succeed per se. I mean, people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they were dropouts. But the caveat to that is looking at a person's socioeconomic status in regards to their upbringing and the environment that they're around, I think plays a substantial factor in a person's success that we just don't give it enough credit for. I mean, Steve Jobs went to Stanford before he dropped out, Bill Gates. He was going to Harvard where he met his roommate and created Microsoft, and we all know the rest of the story. So often this, this confounding variable of, of where people spend their time, who they're around, the access to influence that they have is kind of forgotten, and the message really seems to be you can, you know, after high school, go off on your own, build a business and succeed. And while that might be true, I think it's very important to consider who is my network, what sort of resources do I have? Do I have connections maybe through my parents? If not, where can I meet those mentors? Are there certain clubs or events I need to be going to? For myself, I found that university actually was a great place to meet lots of like minds. Because if you ask yourself, where do you find the smartest young minds who are most likely to succeed? Statistically, that's university. And while I don't agree with everything that university does and everything that it stands for right now, I especially think that they need to be helping students find their passion and become aligned to that. I think that it is important, regardless of what your plans are, to find a place where you can connect with those like-minded people and really have a team, because no one succeeds just by going at it alone. Yeah, one thing I really like about your bio is that they don't teach passion 101 in university or college, and it's true. For me, I think the closest thing I had was um, philosophy, the meaning of life, and it was a really good philosophy class that got me looking at the world from a different point of view and kind of understanding what drives people philosophically. Um, but that was just a class that I randomly signed up for, and it's not mandatory to everyone. And I think I've always been very curious, and I've kind of been pursuing and finding my passion for a long time. But I think the key thing is that you just got to put in the work, right? You got to be able to follow your intuition and your gut and go after what it is that you believe in. That's true. And Often it's our life experiences that shape us. For myself, I went to Brazil in 2012. The reason I went is that I was experiencing boredom in my life. At uh, 22 years old, I had a handful of clients. It was enough to pay the bills and have some money set aside. And it was, it was really boring actually because maybe it took me three, maybe three to five hours a week was how much I actually had to work to basically earn a full-time income that summer. And at first I was so excited because I felt like I was there. I felt like I had arrived. By the way, be very cautious of the arrival syndrome. It is the biggest reason why you can go from success to failure almost overnight. But I'm not going to talk about that now. The reason I'm sharing this story is that 
people think that when they arrive, when they make that money, when they build this dream business, that it's all over, you know, game's done, I'll be happy forever. But that's not the case. The case that I found is that I needed something to, you know, a purpose in my life to pull me forward. I needed to find that that deeper meaning. I needed to answer that question of why am I here? What am I called to do in the world to make a difference? How can I share my voice? And that question, the question of why am I here and how can I make a difference in the world is a thousand times more difficult than answering the question of how do I make enough money to survive? And I think that many of us are almost happy or it's almost safe for us to be in the survival mindset because as long as we're focused on survival, as long as we're focused on building a business to make enough money to pay the bills or go on a nice vacation or build a legacy, whatever that is, we don't have to ask ourselves the question, what am I going to do when I've accomplished all of that? Yet, that is the most important question perhaps that we can ask ourselves right now, which is why am I here? What am I called to do? That's powerful. And like you said, yeah, it is life experiences. I was lucky enough, one of us friends, uh, Rob Dyer, started a charity called Skate for Cancer and barely finished high school but skateboarded from Los Angeles, Toronto, raising money for cancer research. And no one really expected it to grow that big. You know, he just thought he'd kind of keep going with it. But, you know, at one point there were shirts uh, that West Bernard carried across one-third of Canada. Um, you know, he's done multiple skates since then. And it's really been a passion project for him. But it's amazing how just following your heart and you know going after that where you can find yourself and it's true the most successful people they don't necessarily have to go to university Steve Jobs, Bill Gates those people just drop out and follow what their intuition their passion is and it seems to lead them to good places it does I mean I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on the best courses and coaches I could find who could help me identify my passion and my purpose and turn it into a thriving business but in the big scheme of things, if you're just looking to find your why, if you're just looking to find out maybe why you're here, you don't necessarily need to spend even a dollar because I believe that there's a still small voice inside of us that while we slow down our when we slow down our lives enough to listen to that inner voice, that inner knowing that if we, if we hack away at it enough, we can kind of figure out why we're here. We can kind of figure out something we're called to do. But the difference that I'd like to talk about is that figuring out why we're here or figuring out something we're passionate about and actually building it into a business that makes money and can pay for our own lifestyles and that of our families is two different things. It wasn't until I actually hired a marketing consultant uh, from California that I was able to actually see that the eighth habit was my passion. Up until then, I just assumed that everybody else kind of knew about this sort of philosophy as well and that I wasn't special. I needed somebody from outside of me to point it out to me that what I knew was special and unique and that the world could benefit from it. And sometimes when you have someone else, someone who is outside of you, see a certain greatness in you that even you might not see, that might be the keystone to move your life forward and allow you to turn that passion, to turn that, that knowing or that purpose that you have inside of you into a business that really does change lives. And you built a business around the eighth habit, right? Like you kind of spun off, uh, was that one of your first things that you did, kind of help people find their voice? Um, I was involved in some financial strategies and uh, investing before that, but this really was the first time where I developed a business that I would continue doing, even if I had a, a year to live or a month to live. When I hired my marketing uh, consultant, uh, when I first started this company, he really did point out that for me, my unique story really revolved around being in a serious ski accident when I was 11 years old uh, that could have been fatal and a few years after that 
reading the book The Eighth Habit and becoming so passionate about that that I almost became a master of it, as a child even, and vowed to share that with others. I just thought that that was something I did like a hobby, but he pointed out that it really was more than a hobby, that it was a life purpose, and that I could actually take that, strategize it as a business, and use it to help more people while having a comfortable lifestyle. How important is, in your opinion, um, where we take for granted what we know, I think we all live the assumption that every human being knows what we know, and in terms of the eighth habit, you probably just made the assumption that everyone's read this book, everyone knows this. Um, how important is it to recognize our unique gifts to really find out what it is we can contribute to the world? Well, there's something I'd like to share I learned from my psychology degree, and that is something called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge basically means that when we know something, say maybe we know the names of all the states in the United States, that we assume more people have this knowledge than is actually reality. So in other words, how that might apply to us is that when I know something, like maybe the seven habits, the eighth habit, and the few, you know, quote, secrets of success, that it's in my human nature to assume that, you know, more people know this than is true. So when we can get around the curse of knowledge by recognizing that a lot of the knowledge and the experiences that we've had in our life are not actually as universal as maybe we think, we can begin seeing it as an opportunity to share these with people in a way that can change lives. Because until we see ourselves as change makers, until we see ourselves as someone who has a unique purpose, and is perhaps put on this planet for a reason, we're not going to step up and take ownership of that and really make a difference. Awesome. Some really powerful stuff. Um, so in wrapping up here, um, what if somebody wanted to work with you, what would that kind of look like for them and what kind of uh, services can you offer? If anyone on your show is interested, I'd love to have a chat with them and offer them a complimentary uh, strategy session. They can go to my website, uh, www.justinbrokoff.com, just fill up the complimentary session link, and uh, we can schedule that. What I primarily do with people is I work with them on a 12-week program, really helping them to understand their voice, become very intentional and clear with that, and to create a plan and execute that that either allows them to transition into a career that allows them to do what they love, or to build a business or manage an existing business so it more clearly reflects their passion and their purpose that they can have a life doing something that they love and making money at the same time. Awesome. And I'll um, put your contact information in the show notes on your website so that way people can link off to it rather easily. Any last comments or anything else you want to uh, mention to the audience before we uh, wrap up here? Sure. I think if I was only to leave people with one message, that one message would be that you're unique. You have a purpose here. You're not just you know, on the earth as a complete coincidence or accident of nature, if you will. You're here because you have gifts, you're here because you have a passion, you have a purpose, you have talents. And now the time is for you to understand what those talents are, to understand your purpose, to tap into that inner knowing, and really do something about it. Because if you don't take action, if you don't do what you're meant to do, nobody else will. So thank you very much for listening and thank you for the interview. Very well said and uh, pleasure having you. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, do this and uh, look forward to uh, chatting to you in the future. Thank you very much, Beth.